Good morning, everyone. It's Friday, TGIF. These rooms keep getting better and better all the time. It's just been an extraordinary run we've had the last couple of weeks. Today, we're raising the bar yet again with a speaker who really needs a little introduction, although maybe because in this, maybe in London he, he doesn't, but in the States maybe he does. I was teasing Julian earlier this morning. He's not well-known enough here in the States, given his stature and how right he's been on market. So I'm really, really excited that Julian's going to be with us this morning, um, speaking on what's going on. He's been in the vanguard of getting this right. Um, I think the Fed and Jerome Powell could, could actually take some uh, lessons from Julian. And I think you're going to be very interested to hear what Julian has to say. I'm also thrilled that a good mutual friend, uh, Tommy Thornton, Tommy knows Julian really well, and I've known Tommy, I know Tommy really well. Tommy's co-hosting with me, so good morning, Tommy. Good morning, Julian. Good morning. So Julian, so, so Julian, you're actually in Chicago. Do I do I get this right? How are you spending your time these days? You're a Brit, but what you're going between like like Den, like Colorado and Chicago? Like what 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 are your what are your what are your logistics? Yeah, so um, my daughter went to school in Connecticut up by by Tom, and so um, I didn't need to be in Denver anymore, <clears throat> which wasn't my favorite city, to be honest. I love the mountains, but I'm not a huge Denver fan. It's not a big enough city for me. So uh, since I'm a Brit and I can't stand sticky heat, that kind of writes off the whole of the southern U.S. I spent 20 years in Manhattan. Um, so I was kind of left with Boston, Chicago, and uh, Boston's not that much bigger than Denver. So I plumbed for a uh, a period in Chicago, see what it's like. So I have a great view of the lake downtown. It's pretty fantastic. The summer has been great. The winter was a little brutal, but that's when I go to Colorado. That, 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 that's great, Julian. So, uh, Julian, I know you're on a tight schedule. We've got you. We're very fortunate. Uh, we've got a 12 o'clock uh, noon hard stop. The room... By the way, we'll have a hard stop at uh, 12.30, so Julian, you're free to go to 12, but we're probably going to go on for a half hour then. This is not going to turn into one of our three, four, five-hour marathon sessions. I have a hard stop at 12.30, so don't worry. This this is like going to, going to the dentist, Julian. It's not going to hurt, and we'll be brief, so it'll be easy. This should be a labor of love for you. All right, so, 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 so let's get right into it. So, Julian, you've been out in the vanguard correctly um, calling the inflation situation for what it was. I mean, all people have to do is go back and look at what you were saying six, 12 months ago. It's all there. Um, you know, pay attention to that man. No, pay no attention to that man behind the podium at the Fed press conferences. Instead, pay attention to Julian Brigham. So, Julian, um, so, so you've been very clear. Um, and, I, and I urge everyone to go and uh, go on go on YouTube, go on the Internet. You can see Julian's um, recent interviews on uh, Fox Business News and other uh, the channels, although I don't think you're on the Cartoon Network, from thank God. So anyway, Julian, could you give us an update of sort of mark-to-market on how your thinking has progressed? Maybe just sort of go on a rant for a few minutes, and then Tommy and I, I'm sure, will have plenty of questions. There'll be a lot of really good questions from the audience. But sort of mark-to-market your views on inflation, particularly in, in light of the fact that recently there seems to be a growing uh, uh, consensus that we're going to have a recession when exactly we don't know maybe it already started maybe it hasn't who knows but you know what, what do you think about inflation and how does the slowdown in growth uh, impact your inflation call what do you see happening for inflation for the next few months in 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 just in the bigger picture scheme of things it's not even so much whether we saw the high print or not but just generally speaking you know the, the impact of inflation and how slow it's going to be to go away in terms of how it overall impacts markets so without further ado julian 
the floor is yours. Thanks, George. Uh, quite a few, uh, quite a few things there. I mean, look, we've generally been in the sort of structural pivot towards inflation from a sort of disinflationary world. And let's let's put some perspective on this. A couple of fantastic papers written by the Bank of England, which we highlighted like seven or eight years ago. Um, sorry, seven or eight months ago to our clients by the Bank of England, looking at sort of historical bond bull markets over 800 years, periods of extremely low uh, real interest rates. And um, they were looking at in comparison to the current bond bull run that we've obviously had uh, for the last sort of 30 odd years. And what was very interesting, George, was just the similarities that we'd seen uh, in those and how um, they were caused by periods of extensive growth in global trade or, you know, frequently in the sort of 1600s, you were really talking about uh, intra-European trade because it was the most, well, the most developed of the, of the uh, global economies. Um, expansions of sort of innovation in finance and expansions of innovation uh, in technology. And we're all arrogant uh, and with such short-termist views in the world that we tend to think that as we live here and now is so radically different from history. Well, I would postulate that you know things like the internal combustion engine uh things like the clipper ship uh were arguably more important than bloody salesforce.com or software innovations right in terms of really spurring global trade creating financial innovations and what the bank did was they they looked at these periods this would be the third longest bond bull market that we've seen in history period with with low real rates and uh, low inflation and they looked at how those kind of ended and there was an overriding theme and they ended basically with um, typically a pandemic and or a war so as we've looked at the big picture dots right if we've looked at trump's for example fist foray first foray into like blowing the doors of fiscal profligacy right taking out any fiscal hawks to the bike shed and shooting them behind, you know, shooting them through the forehead, we kind of saw these dots starting to move. We saw a society that was ready to embrace greater fiscal spending because of growing inequality. We, we've been writing about this coming spat between the US and China and what that would do for global trade, what that would do for corporate profits. Uh, we've been writing this series called RIP Corporate Capitalism, where we kind of saw peak Thatcher Reagan corporate capitalism really starting with the 0809 circuit. So we've been more in that kind of the dots are aligning for a structural upturn in inflation. Now, as I said, look at those Bank of England papers, they tell you that the overriding theme is disinflation has been for 450 years, but it doesn't mean you can't get these extended interludes where you get bouts of rising inflation. And the two that most interest us are the late 30s into late 40s or a 10-year period and the late 60s in particular into the 70s and we've been kind of playing this late 60s analogy for a while uh, because it seems fitting particularly with uh, post-covid where you've had this big burst of fiscal spending and now where the model seems to be if you look at say the proposal of biden to send out you know gas cards or you can see it in austria where they've offered people a thousand euros to offset um uh, higher uh, energy prices is to this model of sort of governments coming in and supporting things with fiscal, not just purely monetary. And that combo is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, we run a, an excess stimulus model, which we did, uh, which we built in cohorts with a, with a client of ours who came to us last April. And actually our first 
inflation trade was in March of uh, 2020 off the lows. We bought break-even inflation, five-year break-even inflation at, at, five, at 50 basis points because they got sold by the um, risk parity guys who had them as their inflation hedge and as risk parity deleveraged. Those things got absolutely trashed. And inflation is somewhat cyclical, so it's a great trade. But starting in January of 2021, we really banged home the message that inflation is the most important story here. This thing was getting out of hand. We'd done this work with this client. It suggested that inflationary pressures won't peak until we enter the fourth quarter of this year and then won't abate that much. And while I don't want to get too cute on a model that runs 18 months in advance, uh, it actually, if I, if I stick to the letter of the model, it tells us that we're not going to see peak core CPI until the September print in October at 9.5%, which is 350 basis points higher than it is currently. Um, so I think at the bare minimum, we're looking at a very sticky inflation situation. I think the equity guys, particularly the talking heads on the t financial TV stations that we see, are always trying to be the glass half full guys. There's a simple reason. Right? And your leaders, you know this, George, and, but your listeners should, is that really their ratings are a function of a rising uh, equity market. And, you know, when, the, when you're in a bear market, the advertising revenue tends to fall and the revenues of the um, TV station fall. So they're sort of incentivized, probably almost directly, to be permables, right, and to be cheerleaders. Um, so I think inflation remains very sticky. Uh, I'm very worried about uh, inflation prints. Uh, in Europe as well. We talked about that before the show, George, and I'd said that if you take the three-month rate of change in German uh, inflation and you annualize it, it's running at uh, just shy of 17%. So I think it's entirely reasonable in the Eurozone you're going to see low to middle teen inflation prints, and that's going to put pressure on the long end of the bond market uh, because as bond yields get dragged higher, they're going to take treasuries with that. And that's important for people to understand, even if they don't have anything in Europe and they don't invest in Europe, just understand that outside FX, which is utterly fungible, uh, the sovereign bond market is the next most fungible of markets because you can create a uh, treasury, a JGB, which the Japanese do, out of treasuries with an FX swap, right? As long as you're prepared to, you think those credit risks are the same. So I, I still think there is quite a lot of inflationary pressure there, but I am now starting to see signs of accelerative weakness uh, in the real economy. We can talk about why that weakness is coming through, because I don't think it's what people think that's actually driving this. And it's a fundamental problem that we face here in the US. And I think it's a, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's a potential policy error that the Fed is heading into. But I am starting to see more accelerative um, weakness in the US economy and that's why for the first time this last week we started to put on uh, kind of more a couple of more recessionary bets we think we're probably a little early we've left ourselves some room um, but I think you're going to see some weak some weaker data coming through I don't think it's going to be weak I mean this is the thing the Fed is betting on this weaker data so it's not going to allow them to step back Okay, which I think the equity boys misinterpret. Um, and I also think that the equity boys don't understand that weaker data, which could end up being, I can see a situation where this could be an ugly recession, um, also means that 
earnings per share have to drop and earnings have to drop. Um, and that's the next shoe, I think, to drop in the equity market. So I do not believe I'm going to be a seller of this rally. There's some big gaps on the charts. You know, if you look at the S&P up to around sort of 4,100, I think there's a, there's a gap on the S&P. Um, I'd love it to get up there. <laughs> I'd love so, it to get up there. Yeah, yeah. So you want to get it up there so you can pound it again. So, yeah. Start, yeah, yeah. So, so, Julian, let's extend it a little bit. So a couple of questions around that. So first of all, this fixation about inflation, whether it's topped, it hasn't topped, you don't think it's peaked. But let's assume it has peaked. Let's assume yeah. Let's assume you're wrong. I mean, seems to me, and I just put words in your mouth, but seems to me, in my opinion, I'll make an I statement, that people are focusing on the wrong thing. It's not, has it peaked? It's how long is it? I like Jim Bianco's definition of transitory. Transitory being that if you don't do anything, it'll come down to an acceptable level on its own. And by measured by that yardstick, it's definitely not transitory. So are people focusing on the wrong thing by just whether in the fixation on, on the Cartoon Network, which is, oh, you know, it's peaked, it hasn't peaked. I mean, what you're saying is that that's not really the right, if I understand you correctly, that's not really the right question, the right thing to focus on. It's that inflation is going to be a problem with us for a while and, and the implications for monetary policy. So I'm not just putting a word in your mouth. I, I think there's a question there somewhere. I'm just giving you my stream of consciousness. Right. So how do you think about inflation in the context of, um, the Fed's ability to ease up on monetary policy, the, 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 still their need to tighten financial conditions to reduce aggregate demand to bring inflation yet down further to their 2% target. So I think um, really you're sort of in a game here of, of nominal GDP targeting. And I, think, um, and I think this is what people kind of forget. You know, the, the equity guys have got fixated about this idea of it's inflation. That's the problem. It's not, right? It isn't singularly inflation. Powell has made it absolutely damn clear in every single utterance when he gets an opportunity that there is a mismatch in aggregate demand and aggregate supply, in particular in, in the labor market, right? We are growing well above trend, right? This is not an emerging market, right? Our trend growth is not 6 or 8%. It's, according to JP, it's 1.75, right? So at a bare minimum, you have to get growth back to trend, okay? And that's why he keeps talking about financial conditions in aggregate, because that's how you do it, right? You know, I, I loved earlier in the year where you would hear these, you know, equity people on, on the TV channels going, well, we've priced in four rate hikes and the market can take it. So the inference being, so now we can rally. And I kept saying, you know, and I'm getting increasingly old, so I'm allowed to do this, George. I'm allowed to shout incoherently at the TV, right? Then you don't bloody get it. If you can take it, then we need to price more than four rate hikes in, right? Because Fed funds are nothing in of themselves. They're purely and utterly a signaling mechanism, right? They're a signaling mechanism, as Jay Powell has made it very clear, to tighten financial conditions. And one key metric of financial conditions is the equity market, right? So we need to get this equity market down to a level that slows growth. And now we're back into one of those periods, and we've been in them a couple of times, we were back in May, where you're kind of, you know, bouncing, balancing that clutch, on the, in the car, right? For those of you who, you know, old enough to remember when you used to drive a manual, uh, certainly in this country, right? But you're balancing the clutch, right? So if bonds rally a bit, 
yields fall and the equity market goes, ooh, hurrah, and tries to rally, then bonds have to sell off and yields have to rise because otherwise you're easing financial conditions. And I don't think financial conditions are tight enough yet even to get us much below trend growth. And you do need to bring trend growth down a hell of a lot uh, to ring out this degree of inflation. I mean, I know they're playing an element of optimistic disinflation, which was a strategy that Greenspan followed in the mid-90s, where he kind of tightened a little bit, then hoped that things would roll and bring them back. But it's not clear to me that that's going to happen quite so easily, and in which case, at least at face value, Powell has girded his loin and is prepared to have a recession. He's told you. He told you with that employment forecast in the SEPs, the forecast that they do, um, and um, a 0.5 increase in unemployment is a recession. Right. So, Julian, that, that, that's, that's terrific. Let's go down a couple other uh, tangents here, and then uh, maybe Tommy's got a question to follow up, and then we'll open up to the audience. Um, as we're all very U.S.-centric here over in the States, uh, oftentimes they don't pay sufficient attention to what's going on elsewhere. Mm. Could you just uh, speak to one Europe... You mentioned the uh, inflation numbers in Germany, but also the tensions now that you know are appearing and manifesting themselves in the sovereign markets, spreads between BTPs and uh, and, and bonds, as an example. Yeah. So you've got two issues here. One is you want to keep spreads tight. The other is you got to raise rates to keep inflation down. Those two are yeah. opposite each other. And then the other the other potential fault line out there, source of imbalance, is what's going on in Japan, where yeah. the, the widowmaker trade for decades now has been shorting JGBs. The siren calls beckon yet once again. Um, I'm not suggesting that people go running headlong into uh, the Widowmaker trade, but this kind of reminds me of Stein's Law, you know, that which can't go on won't. You know, at what point is Corota going to blink? And Because the, if they don't do something on the yields, the yen's going to go much weaker. You and I spoke about that, and I, yeah. I believe that's your view. So, two questions. One, Germany, Europe, and spreads, and then, and, and then two, Japan. Over to you. So Europe, I think, is an interesting inflection point um, in the sense that you've seen this collapse in consumer confidence in Europe, um, not surprisingly, because they were threatened with, you know, thermonuclear war on their doorsteps and, you know, all the gas is going to be shut off and they're not going to be able to produce anything and they're not going to have jobs and not surprisingly, consumer confidence imploded. And if it stays that way, George, um, they're screwed. I mean, they're utterly screwed. Um, because you're looking at a recession that's potentially deeper than the global financial crisis. Um, however, there's some unusual standouts that have not yet followed. So business confidence, even though it's weak, come off the highs, is not weakening yet, really, to the, anywhere close to consumer confidence, suggesting maybe that what really happened is the consumer overreacted potentially. So let's see if that consumer confidence starts to rise. But um, businesses haven't dropped back. Employment remains pretty solid. Um, now, don't get me wrong, this could just be a lag and it could all turn south. And as I said, if that's the case, then the ECB is going to back off doing anything and they're going to be looking in a highly stagflationary environment and we'll see where the euro goes in that situation. I mean, it'll be, it'll be a mess. 
Um, but the inflation problem is a problem for this central bank, right? I mean, people forget, even in a stagflationary environment, central banks cannot allow real rates to get more and more and more negative. Right? They still have to, at a bare minimum, keep up with inflation. And so I look at this inflation metric and I look at what Europe is actually running in terms of policy, and it's ludicrous. It's truly ludicrous. So, um, so, so, so Julian, it's ludicrous, yes, but I mean, I, which, you know, which is more ludicrous, the fact that real rates are so negative or the fact that, you know, spreads are... Well, spreads are, spreads are wide, George. Don't get me right, wrong. But actually, I think this fragmentation story or the sort of breakup story is a little overplayed. And the reason is, is what you're seeing is you're seeing higher spreads, but not, not with Italy and Spain, which are, and Greece, which are typically referred to as the pigs, right? Portugal's you know, okay, not with them really moving in a way that, say, they did, you know, when Draghi came out with, um, you know, his famous, uh, his famous sort of intervention, um, whatever it takes, and then um, also the LTRO, which they kicked in in 2011. Because actually what you're seeing is you're seeing bull steepeners and the default trade is actually a bare flattener, um, and you're not moving that way. So I think really what you're seeing is a reaction to, is a bond market that's saying, I just don't want to own any European debt at this point, and I particularly don't want to own BTPs in this environment. But it's more because I think of the inflationary story than it is at this point a default risk. So I kind of think that's a little overplayed. Uh, uh, Julian, as long as we're on Europe, before we go on to Japan, uh, what's your view? Do you have any view, strong views on currency, particularly the euro? And then we'll come on to the yen. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, uh, you know, structurally, I think there's a problem. I think the dollar actually is increasingly vulnerable. A lot of the longer term flows suggest a significantly weaker dollar. But for the moment, it isn't happening. Right. So if you look at lots of terms of trade, you look at all sorts of things, they are showing that the dollar should weaken materially. But the dollar isn't weakening. And so then you have to ask yourself, those flows that are being created by those longer term metrics, where is that money going? And what it's gone into up until now is the US equity market. So basically, foreigners have been recycling money they earned from the US back into the US to fund that spending by buying US equities. And that creates a lot of instability. I mean, it's the classic, George, stable, unstable equilibrium. Um, you know, where multiple things could go wrong to upset that balance and cause that money that's sitting in the U.S. equity market to go home, causing the euro and the yen to rally. But it hasn't happened yet. Um, maybe it's because Europe's just such a basket case. We'll see over the next few months. Um, and maybe this continues. But structurally, I'm, you know, the last trade I had on, FX trade I had on, was a long dollar trade, and that was against the renminbi. Um, so, and I haven't really been playing FX that much um, because it's just okay. been kind of tough. But I, structurally, I'm, I'm a dollar bear. I just don't think we're there yet. And I don't think that capitulation in the dollar will occur, sir, until uh, we get to a 
material bout of pain. So in other words, it is going to take the Fed faced with the, which in economic terms is called the impossible trinity, where you stick a gun to their forehead in an environment where bond yields are too high, threatening the stability of government, where the equity market is too low, threatening the real economy, where they are forced, irrespective maybe of still too high inflation, to pivot and come to the rescue yet again. And at that point, that's when the dollar, I think, will go. But we are not there yet. And this time, clearly, it's going to come from an awful lot more pain than we have seen since 08, I think. Yeah, so Julian, let me, if you had to hazard a guess, is that pivot a 2022 event or a 2023 event? Uh, it's probably a 2022 event. Okay, so, um, so I would so, say later, probably later in the year. Right? I mean, I'm right. I'm kind of a big believer. If you can eke out, you know, till sort of July, then you know, in the equity market, it doesn't implode. Then it typically is going to hold itself up until September, October. I could be wrong, George. You're a better equity guy than me, so you tell me when companies are going to start revising down earnings. You know, is it is it in the next? Is it in July? Or do we wait? Do we have to wait till August, September? Yeah. So, so Julian, so I wanted to come to earnings in one second because you and I spoke yeah. earlier today. But before we do that, let's just go back. Could you just mention uh, Japan and the yen? Yeah. Then I want to come on to earnings. Yeah. So look, I mean, we we write a, a a separate Japan publication, and you know Georgia, an old colleague of yours or an old contact of yours, Jeff Usher writes that for us, and Jeff. Um, has been pretty clear on the, the Corroda stance, right? We've been defiant in our view um, about JGBs. We just sort of said, we don't think they'll go. Um, he's going to hold his ground. Um, he doesn't get replaced until next spring. Um, there's lots of tension. There's been tensions around the currency, but mostly related to the uh, electoral cycle in Japan. So that will kind of go away in the next few weeks too. Um, so I'm, while I see inflation increasing in Japan, it's not nearly to the degree that I see it increasing in the US or in Europe. I think we're looking at 3.5% eh, ex-food, uh, ex which is how they measure it. Um, a lot of that is energy, in fairness. We don't yet have the wage growth. So I think Kuroda is going to hold his ground. Uh, that means that dollar-yen remains vulnerable in an environment where U.S. bond yields can trade higher. I mean, it's essentially a quasi-bond trade, but with higher beta. Right. Okay, let's move to earnings. Um, this has been great when Rapid Fire were knocking these off. That's a wonderful tour de force. So you mentioned earnings. Um, I believe earnings are going to be a complete uh, wipeout. Um, I, I, uh, you just look at you know, as a proxy, and I want to hear you're, you're more sophisticated on this. You get in the weeds better than I, Julian. But, you know, I look at simple things like CPI, um, uh, PPI, um, you know, using that proxy. It's not perfect, but it gives a good, dire yep. a good direction. And I think you're looking at it's a total wipeout. That spread is widened at unprecedented levels um, at a time when demand is slowing. Uh, we are. George? 
You broke up a bit, sir. Losing you. Pretty sorry. Yeah, he may have gone. Um, <laughs> so let me talk about earnings. Let me talk about earnings. And um, so I have been writing for a while, and I've used it in my presentations. Uh, and I think it were uh, that the, the, the equity market, I think, is caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place. And I think it's brilliantly summed up by the chairman of Restoration Hardware uh, in the last round or last but one rounds of uh, earnings announcements where he came in. And for those of you who are listening from overseas, Restoration Hardware is a sort of bull market uh, furniture store uh, in the U.S. And he said, I don't think anyone... Yeah, we, we can, George. I'm just, I'm just answering the earnings question. So I was just saying, I think, if you, I think the dilemma facing the equity market is twofold. And I think it was perfectly summed up by the chairman of Restoration Hardware. So he came out and he said, I don't think anyone really understands what's coming from an inflation point of view because either businesses are going to make a lot less money or they're going to raise their prices. And I don't think anyone really understands how high prices are going to go everywhere. Okay, so this is probably three months old, but I think it still is poignant, not least because while people looked at the final demand um, PPI and it it plateaued a little bit, if you look at the old series, the finished goods PPI, it surged another one plus percent. And it's now the highest that we've seen uh, outside uh, 1973. Uh, which is when we had the first oil shock, right? So this is this is remarkable, and it's running at 16%. So if you if you take that back to a simplistic thing, what was the chairman of Restoration Hardware saying? He's saying either we won't be able to increase prices, margins are going to get absolutely crushed, or if we can push them through, inflation is going a lot higher. And then the extrapolation is then the Fed's going to have to do a lot more and the equity market is going to get crushed by higher bond yields. Okay? So when I look at that mix, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, our margin model suggests, which is a cost-led thing, so maybe we can get some productivity. The problem being at the moment is while firms, I think, would love to get the shiny new machine that replaces the very expensive labor that they're having to address, you can't get the chips to buy the shiny new machine, right? So for the moment, that productivity doesn't seem likely to come to the rescue. So when I look at our margins model, which in the S&P are currently just below 16%, the model suggests they halve to eight based on costs. Right, eight. I mean, that's the worst we've seen outside. It's worse than the dot com, post dot com bubble. Right? Now, I think the good news in inverted commas is that most firms, while we've seen some that have struggled with passing price increases on, most firms still seem to, in the US, being able to pass those price increases on. But that just means inflation at the bare minimum remains sticky. And so. I, I think that, you know, this is, this is the dilemma. I don't think there's a get-out-of-jail-free card here for equities because I don't see inflation coming down. In fact, it may not yet have peaked. I do see a Fed that has to be, that seems intent. I'm told by all my old policy 
friends who, when I used to work with at Medley Advisors, who still talk to policymakers, that you know they've all read the the minutes from 1973 and 1974, all the Fed officials, and they're determined not to be in Arthur Burns. Federal Reserve and make those same errors again. That you know that means they're going to be tough. They're going to be hard. They're going to try and drive this thing. You know, gird their loins. They're looking at real economic data, which is lagging, and we can talk about why that is in a second, George. But I just don't see how equities really get out from under this thing, right? Because it doesn't appear to me that necessarily that those inflationary pressures are yet dissipating and certainly not enough, right? I mean, if a firm's facing 16% price increases and they're passing on six, well, then they're getting margin compression of 10%. I mean, you know, all these numbers are just horrible, right? It's just, to my mind, is not an easy time. 100%, Julian. Sorry, I broke up before I knew that was going to happen. I'm on the highway. All right, so let's go. That's, That's fantastic, Julian. Let's go to some questions. Uh, uh, we'll go to, I don't know, Tommy, if you have a question you want to weigh in, or, or Three Aces, or Josh Muccatelli. So whoever's got a question for Julian. Uh, I'll start. Please. Have I'll start. Hey, Julian, how are you? Hey, mate. Good. Good. Nice to hear from hear you on this. Um, and as always, uh, your comments are just uh, so spot on. Uh, we're, if you're, like, sleeping or waking up in the middle of the night, um, thinking about something that could go terribly wrong. Um, let's say uh, ECB, the Bank of Japan, the Fed, a- anything out there. W- what are things on your mind that just like the biggest concern that could topple basically everything? Let's say that it, it's a big mama black swan. Um, gosh. I mean, I think a currency crisis in the Eurozone could be one, Tom, right? Let's say uh, you get a truly horrible stagflationary environment in the Eurozone and the, and the Euro just tumbles, right? Uh, because the ECB is incapable of getting ahead of the inflationary situation. But let's say those consumer confidence numbers are really right and the Eurozone goes into a deep recession. I think that's one, um, I'm not so worried about Japan. I mean, really, um, it's possible. Um, you know, on the currency crisis front, the UK is another one, potentially much worse than the Eurozone because it has a big current account deficit as opposed to a surplus. Um, the other one which in the last 48 hours has been concerning me are these, because it's just not on anyone's radar, is these new, more contagion and virulent strains of COVID, which are coming out again. Uh, the UK started to warn against them because these ones don't, they're as vicious as, they're as infective, sorry, as vicious as Delta, I think, and infectious as Omicron. And they congregate in the lungs again. So, um, and there's virtually no protection, apparently, from vaccines or prior infections. Um, yeah, I mean, black swans, those, those kind of scare me. Okay. That makes sense. Now where, um, as far as inflation goes, I, I, I think you just answered uh, the question I was going to ask, uh, ECB is definitely behind the curve. 
Yep. Do you think the Fed has moved considerably back to where they should be right now with another 75 coming in July? Do you think that'll get them to a place of more comfort? Where they can I mean, it really, it really back off. Right. Uh, no, I don't think, there. Tom. I mean, the problem, the, the, I think the Fed will back off. Uh, look, here's the thing. If you look at a, <clears throat> a metric of um, kind of Fed funds versus nominal GDP, right? And that's, you know, remember all those, Janet Yellen was talking about targeting nominal GDP, and there's a reason, right? I mean, it's a, it's a useful metric of sort of nominal aggregate demand, and, it, you know, that's really how I've always thought that the world works, right? I mean, no one really thinks of, oh, my real pay packet is, you know, 98 dollars a, a month uh, a week not 100 right i mean it, <laughs> no one really thinks of it in uh, in real terms so i, I kind of like that metric and if you look at that um where we are now real fed funds against nominal or nominal gdp sorry against real fed funds is like minus 980 basis points so some of that will be redressed as the fed raises rates um but a typical tight level on that in that ratio is zero. So we are 980 basis points that either has to be apportioned, Tom, between higher Fed funds, lower real growth, or lower inflation. 980 basis points, right? So you start doing the math. Right. You know, let's say growth goes to two. Let's say, you know, inflation goes to four. Well, then you still got to get Fed funds to six to get. <laughs> I mean, you just start playing around with those sheer numbers and it's pretty hard to see that the Fed is close to this. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I think Powell. You know, the dirty little secret that a lot of um, macro guys like to keep to ourselves is it was never about race. It was always about financial conditions. Powell's made that very clear. You know, if, as I said, if you look at where the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index is, which is not a bad proxy for GDP, it's probably commensurate with about two and a quarter percent GDP growth. That's not even fucking trend, right? So financial conditions aren't even tight enough to slow us to trend. Right. I mean, let's assume that ISM drops this coming week. So I think things have changed very dramatically in the last month. Um, but let's forget, I mean, a mid-cycle slowdown where you typically got back to sort of trend was sort of 51.52 for ISMs. I mean, we got so used to the damn thing sitting at 60, which is historically way above normal, that we've just got very arrogant about this. So I think the Fed's got a hell of a long way to go. The question is, is at what point in bubblicious dot-com style equity markets does the equity market drop? Because that, and, and George and I talked about this before, that's really the indicator. Right, because of what I call acute financialization or hyper-financialization. So, so George, let me ask, let me follow on Tommy's question. Is the Fed, I mean, the Fed's talking the talk, and they're pretending now to walk the walk. My question to you is, should we really believe what Jerome Powell is saying, or or is it, that's all really a fig leaf, and really, you know, there's the old argument, well, 
the only way you can deal with the debt is devaluing the debt. So we need more nominal growth. So they're talking the talk, but they really don't want to walk the walk. What they really want to do is inflate the debt away. So which of the, which of those which of those conspiracy theories should we take them at face value, or should we believe the conspiracy theories we put to you? My my policy friends tell me you take the man at face value, and I am tempted at this point to take the man at face value. In total contrast to say the ECB, right, where I think you know you're seeing a lawyer and their double speak trying to lead a central bank. Uh, I wouldn't trust Lagarde as far as I could spit. But Powell, I think particularly with that interview that he gave on NPR, which I keep banging the table, I think is, is really, really important because you know, it's almost like a personal solemn pledge to the bottom half of the American populace that I intend to deal with inflation and address the problems that you are getting. Uh, you know, I really think that was important. So I'm tempted to take the, face, the Fed at face value. I'm not, you know, I've, I worked at a policy shop for, you know, a decade. And I, I think these guys are well-intentioned. I think they're appalling at calling cycles, to your point earlier, George, right? I think they're, you know, I have a friend of, who's followed the Fed. You know, he has this expression, I've followed the Fed man and boy for 40 years, and they're always the most bullish at the top, and they've never... Uh, they've never caught a downturn, right? I think they're appalling at forecasting. Um, but I don't, think I don't think Powell is disingenuous. Great. Okay, let's go now to uh, the guy with the best name on Twitter, Joe Schmuckatelli. And Schmuck, after you, we're going to go to three aces. So Schmuck, good to see you. What's up, man? Great. Thank you, George. Uh, Julian, I've heard you on a variety of interviews and podcasts. I find your analysis brilliant that... It's just a real privilege to even be able to ask you a question. So thank you for being here today. Pleasure. Um, um, hey, you know, I, I'm encouraged by the, uh, the backing off of price uh, and across the commodity spectrum, you know, from wheat and soy to steel and iron and copper, mm -hmm. especially copper is down to uh, yep. uh, what, 18 month lows or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, yep. I, I, I'm hopeful that this will weave its way through and help lower the inflation print going forward. I know it'll take time to do that. Um, I'm wondering if you find a silver lining in that and uh, maybe it will help with inflation, take some of the pressure off the Fed. Uh, maybe they'll moderate in the coming months, especially as we approach the autumn elections. I'd just like to hear your, your views on that. So, I, you know, it's not an uncommon uh, view. Um, I heard it articulated, <coughs> excuse me, um, on CNBC yesterday. Um, but I think it's missing a step, if I may, and that is to ask why are commodities coming down, right? And um, why are bond yields doing what they're doing? And they're doing what they're doing because the risks of a recession are rising, to my mind, that is not a bullish event for the equity market. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, oversold, bounce off levels, come back to, you know, I don't know, 4,100 or something, you know, maybe in a miraculous kind of world, 4,400. But the problem is, is that if equities bounce, uh, you're not going to get the tightening of financial conditions you get in an environment where financial conditions aren't even tight enough to slow an economy. Right. If they if 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 they if they bounce back too quickly and ease, we're still going to be growing at two and a half percent, which 
in an environment where we've got massive inflationary pressures and wage growth, you will not right-size that labor market, which Powell has made very clear. So I think, I think whether I call it the, you know, the optimists on Wall Street or the algos who are just trading these correlations, um, I think you need to really look at why commodities are down. You really need to look at why the bond market is doing what it's doing, and in particular, the shape of the bond market, right? So actually what we're beginning to see is a bull steepener. Now, you know, I, all the guys on TV, and once again, this is when I shout at the TV, will say, you know, things like, but they're all equity guys, so they wouldn't even know what the shape of the curve was if it bit them in the arse. They'll say, like, the curve inversion is the sign of the bond market pricing in a recession. Bullshit. And curve inversion is the sign of the bond market uh, when, it's a, when it's a bear flattener, inverting, is, is basically the bond market pricing in an aggressive central bank. Right? And they're pushing up to your yields relative to 10s and 30s. Um, and you're getting this curve inverting with the front end pushing yields higher. What's actually the sign of a recession is actually called a bull steepener. And that's where the bond market starts to look at what's priced into essentially euro dollars, okay, the front end of the curve, belly of the curve, and say, oh, I know central bank, you think you're going to get them to 3.8, which is where the Fed's told us the new terminal rate is, but I'm telling you, I don't think you are. I think that actually what um, is going to happen is we're going to get to recession before then, and you're going to have to back off. And that's actually what's beginning to show signs of happening. If you look at, say, 230s, um, they're starting to steepen that curve, and it's because the front end is actually is rallying and yields are falling slightly more than they are in the 30 years. And that's actually the beginning of recessionary signs. So I know I don't take a lot of uh, relief from that, I'm afraid. And the other thing is, is we've got, even if some of these commodities back off, um, you're now start, your run rate on um, services CPI is about um, or PPI I think is, is about 8% so I can't remember sorry CPI PPI but the services are beginning to accelerate quite markedly here so you know that's the uh, I think that's the issue I think it's going to be as I said if you are lucky this is sticky if you are lucky if you're not, we still have further to push forward. Okay, that's great. Uh, Aces, uh, you got a question for Aces? You know, George, I've been thinking, right? I mean, uh, hi, Julian. Uh, nice Hello. to meet you. Hi. And uh, Tommy, hey, brother. Unbelievable call on the trading bottom on Friday last week. Fucking nailed it. Uh, you know, <laughs> Tommy's my, uh, Let me see where I stick trading the guru. <laughs> yeah, well, that's George. You know, that's between you and the consigliere there. You know, when does he sell? Um, so, hey, Julian, I'm just curious. So we've been talking about the everything bubble here yep. for some time, you know, starting all the way back to the pot stocks and everything, you know, yep. to three, right, across every asset. Yep. So it kind of, you know, looks like the everything bubble here may be kind of behind us um, uh -huh. with the exception to fund flows. You know, I mean, when we look at fund flows here at all time highs and consumer sentiment at all time lows and 
20 trillion dollars worth of liquid assets seemingly have you know gone to heaven uh vc you know valuation down crypto like uh carnage what i'm just curious do you, do you have any opinion because you know if we look at earnings and and you know the s p you know 2022 number being 235 237 and put a realistic, you know, 16 multiple on what's probably most likely a 170, 180 number. You know, we're looking at, you know, maybe another 25, 30% or more down in the S&P here. Um, but, you know, with, with fund flows being the way they are and, and persistent like that, you know, it still seems like this kind of everything bubble still alive, if you will. Do you have any thoughts on that? Thank you, Vance. Uh, no, no, no problem at all. Um, yeah, look, I'm with you. I mean, I, my target on the S&P is about 3,000. And I think, you know, I, you obviously can't play these uh, historical analogies totally spot on. But I think, you know, from a, from a macro backdrop, I think the closest analogy is 1969, which was the second big wave of inflation that we saw uh, ahead of the 70s, right? People forget that inflation started, it wasn't the 70s, started in the mid-60s with profligate, poorly timed fiscal spending, right? And this feels to me like the 35, 36% correction that we got back then. Um, George and I were talking also about valuations relative versus nominal GDP as well, and it kind of feels like that too. But I think the, the in terms of equities, probably what's most poignant is that dot-com period and I think you raised an interesting point about these kind of you know rolling peaks that we had and that's what happened back then right I mean the peak in the Nasdaq was March of 2000 but that was a specky spivvy little market back then right that's why I keep you know tweeting out that chart which was bang on you know, last September when we suggested shorting it, you know, ARC against the NASDAQ back in 2000. Because ARC kind of was or is like the NASDAQ was back then. I mean, super long duration, highly speculative names. Sure, they've got some of the big names that you have now, like Microsoft still in the index. But back in 2000, those things were, you know, embryos in comparison to the behemoths that they are today. So I think, you know, that's something that... Uh, that I think people forget. But the point is, is in 2000, you know, the, the Nasdaq peaks in March. The S&P doesn't really peak until September of 2000. And the Dow doesn't really peak, which was the big boy back then, until May of 2001, when you go into recession. So that whole rolling top takes time. And you, to your point, you detonate the sort of lower quality assets one by one by one. But eventually, you get the big boys. That's great, Julian. Okay, let's go on to Pete. And then after Pete, we go to Lynn. Pete, do you have a question for Julian? <clears throat> I do. Uh, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, perfectly. Oh, great, great. I just had some issues earlier today. I just want to make sure. Um, so really appreciate these spaces. Uh, it's pretty amazing to have everybody here uh, and Julian. Uh, we've never met, and uh, but I follow your work. Um, so I just have, I mean, just some comments, and and I guess some some other questions from a macro point of view. Um, I mean, obviously we've seen this slow grind lower, hitting certain levels, you know, from mm -hmm. a technical standpoint, fund flow, and all of that. But is it is this more of a behavioral kind of thing? Is this sort of a learned response over time? Are we seeing 
is this actual new money coming in or is this a rotation of more of a proceeds trade from a macro view where you start um, to see people are moving in and out you know we're, we're getting we get these bear market rallies and that's yeah. kind of what they've been but from a macro view at some point um the question that really stems to, to this is it a is it a global are we on on the precipice of a global recession or recessions that are going to be sort of dominoes, um, you know, across different different parts of the world. Is it? Is it? Is, do you see something in, in that nature? So I think, um, as I said, I think it's possible that you could get a very ugly recession in Europe. I don't think you've got the conditions yet, but it's entirely possible. Um, in terms of flows, I mean, if you're talking about retail flows. Um, you know, retail flows have been conditioned to, over the last decade, to buy dips, right? Continuously, continuously buy dips. And it's been a phenomenal trade. But my view has always been that the real problem for the market wouldn't come about from weakness. And this is something that I've debated from people. People are like, oh, you know, the economy is going to slow down. You know, and I'll be like, okay, great. We'll just get ready for the Fed or DCB or Bank of England or whoever else who wants to come and print more money and just buy more stocks. The real problem comes from excessive strength because then they can't do that. And I think this is the point, right? Now we've got excessive strength, right? Some of that excessive strength is coming off the boil, but the inflation pressure isn't going to abate quickly. And it doesn't look like we're anywhere, as I explained earlier, between, you know, relative Fed funds and nominal GDP. I mean, not even, not even bloody close. So I don't see how the Fed backs off. And, you know, this is the point that we just found out about. I mean, I was saying six months ago, you know, when people would say, well, yeah, but, you know, 20% down, you have to buy the S&P. And I'd be like, what happens on the day that the market's down 20% and inflation doesn't come down but goes up? Right? So uh, I, uh, I think that's where we are. Julian, let me interrupt on that point specifically. It's very relevant. Um, do you have a view on the oil price right now? Because that's obviously very central to the inflation question. Oil's starting to wobble here. It's had a, a dirt. Now. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing big in the overall scheme of things, but what's your view on the oil price right here? Look, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, George, people have pumped a shitload of money into commodities, right? And I'm a structural believer in the commodity cycle. We haven't seen the dollar fall yet, which is the real kicker we need to get this thing into that next wave, okay? And maybe it won't. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I think it probably will at some point. But there's a lot of money in these trades. And you're taking pretty much everything to the woodshed and chopping it at this point. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that in illiquid markets, you're starting to see some of these pressures. But I personally, um, I think they're great opportunities. So you, you see, you'd be looking to, to not put words in your mouth, great opportunities, meaning you'd be looking to re-engage on the energy? Yeah, I'll be looking to re-engage. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, one of my favorites is sort of, you know, XME against the S&P. I think that's, you know, we're not there yet. I do have it as one of my sort of long-term trades um, that I put in my own book. You know, it broke out of its long-term downtrend back in February. It's probably going to come back down and test that thing. Um, we'll see uh, if it holds. 
Um, but I do think that over time, and it's a real big dollar trade, right? I mean, it's like buying silver or something like that. It's, yep, it's huge. Yep, yep, yep. But I think that's going basically from a ratio of one to five or six over the next decade. So that, that's that's the real investment. Okay. I know you're running short on time. Maybe one or two more questions for you. Yeah, so that's fine, mate. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to keep the room open until 1230. But let's go to Lynn. Lynn, do you have a question for Julian, Lynn? Yeah. Hey, thanks, George, for taking my question. Uh, really appreciate um, the effort you are putting in here, letting us um, talk to these experts. Um, Julian, quick uh, couple of questions. One, I'm curious what you think um, the Fed really need to see or, or at which point does the Fed truly pivot and not just pause, but start cutting, uh, cutting interest rate. Um, and you know, let, let's take kind of market collapsing and and really awful uh, economic collapse um, kind of out of the out of the equation. Obviously, if that happens, um, we're, we're going to see Fed pivot. But let's just say we have market trading sideways, maybe down marginally another 10, 15 percent. Yep. In, in that kind of condition, how do you see kind of what is the Fed's reaction function to uh, to data, like, do we need to truly get to 2% inflation before they start cutting? Or, no, or, I mean, cutting's a big deal, right? I mean, this is the problem, right? You, this, is, this is what people don't understand, right? You're growing above trend now, not below, right? We didn't get above trend nominal GDP in the whole 11 years post the global financial crisis, right? So let's imagine we get the soft landing scenario, all right, where they've managed to slow growth down to, let's say, 1%. And let's say, and this is going to answer your question, let's say monthly prints on inflation are coming in at 0.2.3, okay? And let's say the jolts numbers, the discrepancy between job openings and job hirings has narrowed and closed which is kind of the metric that they're using, right, which is about 3 million too high at the moment. So let's say we've, all those jobs have got taken off the table. And, trend, and we're back to 1% GDP growth, one, one and a quarter, something like that. They can't immediately start cutting there because we're just back to trend. I mean, this is totally different, right? Now, the question is, is, can you go back to trend and not go through that? Yeah, I'm kind of skeptical of that. I, I suspect, you know, I will tell you that if you take a, if you look at the equity market, if you take top to bottoms declines in the S&P and you take it back 90 years, then a 30% decline, which is what you'd get if you get another 10% that you talked about, right? A 30% decline outside 1987, which was not really a bear market. It was more of a, flash crash from negative gamma resulting from uh, portfolio insurance. But outside that, you've always had a recession with 30% top to bottom decline in the S&P. And by the way, you don't always stop at 30% declines. Right? If you get a recession, the question then is just how nasty a bloody recession is. So, Julian, that, that's great. Um, we're going to keep the room going, but you've been very generous with your time. I know you had a 12 o'clock stop. Let me ask you I probably got another question. 10 minutes, George. Oh, it's okay. fine. Okay, let me ask you one other question. So for the average investor in the room, someone who doesn't have access to 
highfalutin, you know, yield curve trades and swaps yep. and all this other stuff. For the average person in the room, tenure that, what would you tell them to do? You know, should they be in stocks, bonds, cash, be defensive, aggressive, long, short? Like for the average investor who's not day trading this thing, what would you tell them to do? Well, I wouldn't tell them what their financial advisor tells them to do, which is just you can't time the market because that's bullshit, right? There's a whole industry <laughs> built around timing the market, and most of us are pretty damn good. Um, so at this point, and we've been telling our clients, you know, I, you can go look at my clips on Fox. I was saying back in November, time to be cautious, time to raise cash, time to be cautious, time to raise cash. Um, I still think we're in that time because I do not think this is over yet, right? I mean, if, if I'm wrong in this market rallies and, you know, I, I lose some silly little moving averages that keep me kind of honest and I just got the sell signal back, you know, uh, in 4,400 on the S&P, it kind of tells me that the target, the average decline is towards about 3,300, 3,000, something like that. It's not that far away. So... I'm still highly cautious. I mean, I think if you, you know, what would I be buying? Not a lot at this point, right? I mean, this is, if you go back to that 2000 analogy, George, I, I use this expression, you can get, you know, what we saw is we saw US growth rise disproportionately to value. But you can look at that metric, whether you could say tech against EM or tech against minings and metals and oil or U.S. against Europe, right? Whatever those metrics which are pushed to extremes have started to correct, just like they did after the dot-com bubble, okay? But there's two ways that a ratio can correct. There's the nice way, okay? The nice way is that the cheap asset, let's say minings and metals, can rise, and the expensive asset can just sit there and lose relative value, okay? Or there is the nasty way, and the nasty way that the ratio corrects is that the, everything drops, but the growthy stuff just drops more. U.S. tech drops more, right? And that's what we've been seeing thus far. And that's what you saw during the first half of the dot-com bubble burst. And I think we're about halfway in that process. Um, only when the dollar started to drop did you see the nice correction. Right. So when the dollar stops and the Fed pivots, everyone's going to tell you to go and buy U.S. stocks. Right. Be far better buying other things than U.S. stocks, unless you buy very dollar sensitive stocks like mining metals, energy uh, companies with huge exposure to EM. Um, but you're much better off potentially buying stocks elsewhere in the rest of the world or commodities or certain emerging markets. Right. Far better. But so far, I still think we're in the nasty correction, George. So it's very hard to recommend anyone buying all right, all right, all right. anything. So, I apologize for my reception for it. So, uh, Tommy, if I fade out, you need to run with the ball. Let's go over to Shrub. Shrub always um, – Shrub's one of the sharpest guys in these rooms. Shrub, uh, do you have a question for Julian, Shrub? Um. I, I was quite interested about, like, the, the one observation I'm going to have uh, here, Julian, is mm -hmm. you know, everyone's thinking about the Fed pivot. And I think that's what's keeping the money in the market. So, I, you know, as George yeah. knows, I just follow yeah. the flow. So, like, uh, this year, there's been $195 billion of 
inflows in stocks. So I think we're all conditioned that the Fed is going to pivot at some point. Right. So it's just, at this point, it's like a frog in a boiling pot. So I just kind of want to want to stay on that path if you don't mind, because if you're even if you think or I think that the Fed pivots in October, although it's three, four months away, you know, three, four months away in the market, we might say, you know what, I'll just be patient. I'll just wait for the pivot. Right. Which is what happened, you know, it's what people were saying in June 08. (laughs) Right, right, right. And this this is the point, right? When do they pivot? As I just said earlier, this time I think is dramatically different from any period that we've seen in the post-GFC period, right? Because the the put is significantly lower because of inflation. And what's happening is that those inflows are anticipating that put and not understanding that the dynamics this time are very different. I don't think you need to rush to buy that, catch that falling knife. I think you can wait until the market starts to rise, right? I mean, you could still catch 75, 80% of the move and not catch the arse low, all right? Particularly, you know, it's very different if you're a, if you're a, if you're a hedge fund, right, where you're trying to leverage Right, and catching that low is singularly important. But I just think until predominantly that retail money is taken, has been beaten out of the market, it's, it's nigh on impossible to see a low. I mean, I look at standard metrics like the VIX, uh, realized vol, cross correlations in, in stocks in the S&P. None of them are even remotely close to capitulatory levels, right? So... I just don't think we need to to rush to do this. And my gut is we are halfway through this bear market and the next leg of the bear market will come via a revision to earnings. Can I add as, one as, thing as, here? Yeah, absolutely. If you don't mind. So, go ahead. so the other thing that to note is unemployment is still very, very low. So we're still Correct. below 4% unemployment. So if you don't mind just expanding on that because my sense would be the Fed is going to keep trying to break things until you know unemployment has to be at least five right well i mean you know typically a 0.5 rise will do it but as i said i mean they've talked he hasn't talked specifically about jolts but we know it was one of yellen's favorite metrics and you can get that breakdown between jolts higher and jolts job openings and you can see that it's like historic extremes uh, at the moment. And I think that's the metric I'd watch personally, as opposed to the unemployment rate. And this is kind of why they keep talking about the um, the soft landing, because they're hoping they can nudge down those job openings without cutting the actual hires, right? I think that's overly optimistic because of that feedback loop between CEOs' behavior and their stock price, right? Because they're only paid to be shepherds of the stock price. So as soon as their stock price starts to fall, they start to cut jobs. So that's the big problem. And that, that's also the big problem, I think, is because the Fed is looking at the real economy. They're looking at things like that inflation data. They're looking at that job data. Both of those are traditionally very lagging. What they've taken their eyes off is the equity market. And if anything, they're cheered by the correction in the equity market. I mean, let's not forget, right? I mean, Apple stock rose 240% post-COVID, right? So this dip, as far as you're the Fed, is like, who cares, right? You know, I gave you 240% and now you're bitching and moaning about, you know, a 20% correction. 
shut up, right? But the point is, is it does, that stock correction does influence, as I talked about earlier, it's actually that which leads these PMIs, and the PMIs are about as good a leading real economic indicators you can get, but it's stocks that lead the PMIs. And it's that, it's the correction in the equity market that will get us into a recession. Through that feedback loop, the CEO's behavior, and I'm afraid by looking at the more lagging real economic data, we're actually going to end up making a policy error. Julian, I can't thank you enough. This has been absolutely wonderful. Um, we're going to keep the room going for another uh, 15 minutes or so, but you've gone overtime. I know we've all learned a lot. I really have learned a lot. I hope you've enjoyed this. You certainly have uh, taught a lot of people, and um, I hope you'll consider coming back again in the future. It's been fantastic, and we'll keep watching. Everyone should follow Julian on Twitter. He's also, uh, you can see him on Fox Business News, and he does make some sporadic media here and there. But Ju Julian, good guy. He's, got, he's a must follow. You follow Julian, you know, a lot of the other stuff guys have had in this room, but he's on my uh, must list, top, top, of my, top of my must list. So I want to thank, thank you, Julian, for, for coming into the room. This has been fantastic. I hope you'll come back again. Pleasure, George. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks, everyone. Yeah, if you want to get hold of me on Twitter, it's at JulianMI2. So you. have a good one. Thanks, Thanks very much, so guys. Fantastic. Bye. Excellent. So, uh, Ford and Shrub, uh, any comments, thoughts, reactions about what Julian had to say? I, I think, mean, um, go, well, go, go ahead, ahead. Tommy. Sorry. Is it? No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, you know, Julian's very measured uh, the way he sees everything, and uh, he sees things in a almost I'm more fast motion. He's very slow motion of how he sees things. And I think that uh, if you could take away some of the, the, his, from this, how he sees things in a longer term perspective. Uh, a lot of us are very focused on the short term. And I think it, it, it brings a really, really solid balance. Yeah, no, I mean, what I would say is uh, his comment on the Fed pivot, I think is just very important because we're all on the same page. We all know the Fed is going to pivot, but <laughs> but the Fed is going to the the Fed put is just much lower than where we are now. So I think that's the biggest danger because uh, I'm speaking with a lot of uh, you know family offices and uh, a lot are are invested. Most of them are fully invested. Um, only one is sitting in cash, all cash, and. Uh, He's he's the only guy that said I just want to see this this uh, this recession play out in full because I've seen this many times. But everyone else is just betting on the Fed. So I think I think it's just very important to uh, uh, to understand this dynamic. Um, you know, many arguments. Yeah, many arguments that they they argue is oh look at all these stocks are down so much or the wealth distraction is sixteen trillion dollars of wealth versus eight trillion in the in eight, but the Fed doesn't really care about the wealth destruction right now. They care about inflation. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, that's their mandate right now. And as Julian said, they're not necessarily crying over the equity markets uh, falling apart or the bond markets falling apart. It's doing their job as far as the financial conditions tightening. So that's, um, you know, and he called that way, way back that that was what we're going to see. Um, the one thing that's really interesting, and we, we didn't really get into it as much as I thought we should 
was the, the whole earnings aspect of how all of this inflation, all of the slowdown, how it's going to hit earnings. And we have earnings starting in, well, I guess next week we have um, Jefferies, and I'm watching that one really close for financials. Uh, but we have uh, Q2 earnings hitting. And I think that it's going to be really, really important to see the ones that give the negative guidance. And and, and then again, you look at a FedEx that is up um, 6.5% today. Their numbers were fine. The new CEO gave a bright outlook, which new CEOs tend to do. Uh, so I think it's going to be really indicative. The, the one thing that I, I thought of also with uh, the CPI, we're going to get the June CPI in, I forget the exact date, in July, but it's going to come in hot. There's no doubt that it's going to be a hot number. And the thing is, as everybody knows, it's a lagging indicator. So we've had a lot of commodity uh, commodities pull back, especially uh, the very important and most watched energy component has pulled back uh, considerably. So you could see you could see the Fed uh, again going 75 in July, barring any you know earnings debacle. S and P at 3200, they might go to 50. But I think you're going to get 75, and then you're going to see the July number in August start to come in weaker. That's my call right now, and I think the Fed may start that pivot where they will go, well, 50 is the is the next one after, I think, is the uh, consensus. Maybe they'll go 25. And then you have the midterm elections, and the Fed historically has tried to uh, avoid being uh, partisan or have some influence on the stock market or around elections. So I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how that develops. And the other thing is, if you go back to 2000, you had an equity market down pretty hard in Q2. Uh, Q2 earnings came out, eh, not great, but the market rebounded into August and September. And then the earnings started to really, really show up um, with huge uh, pre-announcements across the board, especially in tech, which is what Julian was getting it getting at so that's kind of a, a little two cents right there on the earnings the earnings front so i want hey george couple yep. things aces go ahead go ahead got yeah just a couple observations uh an article came out yesterday that gasoline consumption year over year thus far in june down eight and a half nine percent we had an article uh, a b of a report this morning uh, credit card transactions were that were growing 30% in mid-2021 are now negative growth year over year. You start, there's tons and tons, you know, of massive, you know, demand destruction type things going on out there. I just wanted to put that out there. And those are, those are current, you know, leading indicators here, not, you know, things, you know. I'd like to, hey, uh, Baron, um, you have a question? You have something you'd like to talk about, Baron? You there, Baron? Uh, how you doing? Thanks, George. I was just going to comment on Julian, uh, what Julian was saying, which was uh, what I missed him, but uh, it's about the softish landing. You know, that, that reminds me of just, uh, I just kind of have this opinion that basically what they're doing is navigating us through the waters here, where 
they don't want to kill jobs, but that's what's happening. As I said last time we spoke, it's basically the pink slips are lined up for the initial 10%. And if the Fed, through their controls, through whatever, let's just keep tinfoil hat off here, basically controlling the VIX, et cetera, the, uh, they're able to navigate the market lower, but just keep it at a certain level for a certain period of time. They can actually circumvent mass layoffs and only get a certain percentage of layoffs. Well, that would allow them to continue to raise interest rates, scare the market into the next into you know into the next period of the summer, where in the Q3 uh, in the Q3 just before again fall before the elections, and that would be if they if they're able to do it successfully, where they have another period of layoffs, that could be the point where they could pivot. But again, that like other people are saying, I keep hearing about these people just thinking I'm keeping my money in because. I believe that the Fed's going to pivot. This is the bottom, and no way in hell. Uh, they're, they're, they're tapping this down to whatever level it's going to be lower from here, but this is not it. I'm with you, George. Yeah, LeBaron, I would just say um, uh, stuff I'm looking at, um, I, I, stuff Hey, George, we're losing you again. George? Okay, we've kind of lost George here. Uh, hey, yeah. Who would hey, like Tom. to speak? Oh, hey, Tom. Okay. Pete Carpino here. Um, I just oh, wanted hey, to Pete. kind of pick, Go piggyback ahead. on what you were just talking about and what um, I think Barron had mentioned. And it kind of comes full circle into, you know, the Fed. It's always been, to me anyway, it's not so much what the Fed does. It's what they say they're going to do. And then the market reacts, and then they take it, you know, one step at a time. And as as Barron pointed out, that's what's happening. But also that demand destruction that Three Aces talked about, it, you know, would you agree that it could be part of the whole wealth effect? Because we, we heard from uh, the former Fed official, Bill Dudley, out of New York. He basically said, look, that's what that's what the Fed has to do, right? They basically have to create or or, or damage, so to speak, the wealth effect which is a psychological effect, and then you start to spend less. I mean, is that is that sort of what you're seeing as well? Well, I'll take that. Uh, yeah, they're they're they are going after the wealth effect. Unfortunately, the more they do this, it doesn't necessarily affect the upper tier of the poor, the terrible wealth inequality that we have in the country. Uh, it's going after people that are in the stock market, and that's not necessarily the people that are being hit with inflation. Uh, the the thing that um, I, I thought, I don't know if anybody, well, if you could watch the um, the, the congressional uh, testimony from Powell, it was really indicative of how partisan, the, the, uh, especially like Elizabeth Warren was, going after Powell. Uh, because of the job layoffs that, that are going to occur. And, you know, look, this is um, this is a situation that Powell has to do. There's no easy way around it. Everybody's talked about how this Fed and all central banks have been, you know, painted themselves into a corner. And it's just this is the natural uh, process of what happens when central banks have to clamp down on inflation. The one thing that a lot of people don't get is this: a lot of this inflation hasn't been necessarily by just huge demand. It's been also because of supply chain uh, and 
demand or supply shortages. So that, that brings another element to this. And that's why a lot of the energy bulls that I know are, are just adamant that uh, you haven't seen the, the highs yet in energy. So that's something um, I, I think that the Fed, I don't know if they can uh, really affect it that much when you have uh, the supply problems that, that we have right now. Hey, Tommy, could you, could, you just, uh, could you just talk a little bit more about energy? Uh, you had a great call. Um, where are you in the continuity of your thought process? I will just say as an aside, I mean, look, this is a very humbling business. We all get it right. We all get it wrong. If you're any good, you're wrong 60, 40 percent of the time. But I've really been taken aback by some of the uh, tomatoes, brickbats that have been thrown by by some energy bulls that anybody who respect who articulates anything less than a maximum bullish position. And, you know, I was, I was out in the Vanguard being bullish energy, um, you know, up until a few weeks ago. And I know, you know, uh, ACES took some heat for his standing down on his bullish energy view. I did, um, Helene Meisler, who is a highly regarded technician, you know, Helene, we all worship her. We had her in our space uh, a few weeks ago. I posted something this morning, uh, her commentary on the on the price action energy sector. I mean, you know, people just start throwing the insults right away. So to me, there's information content in that. In, 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 but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what did you think about the, about the energy stocks right here, Tommy? Well, I'm not um, – I'll tell you that there's a lot you can listen to on Spaces and not just this Spaces channel. Um, there's a lot of – you know, energy bulls in other spaces that I listen to. And the bottom line is right here, uh, as far as from my technical viewpoint, uh, energy has a pretty good shot at bouncing. We have a lot of DeMarc uh, buy setup nines, which is sort of a uh, shorter term indicator for DeMarc. At the top, and I mentioned this before, um, we had sell countdown 13s. And, and not only on the daily, but we had it on the weekly. And I was really unpopular with some of the Canadian oil mafia who I have a, a affinity for. I like, I like them a lot, but I just, it's not personal, it's technical. Uh, but I think right now you, you might be able to see a, a bounce in this group. Uh, I still think the overall market can continue to bounce. It's not necessarily gonna be straight up like today, but choppy, perhaps getting over 4,000, maybe 4,100. And then like Julian said, you can let some go and lay it out there to, um, to short into it. So that's, that's my view as far as energy right now. I think it's a little overdone. Um, if, if we continue lower, then we, will, we, we could have a, a, a new sequential countdown start and that would extend the the uh, down move. I, I don't see that happening right here. Tommy, let me, I'm nice to be precise. It's hard enough getting the direction right, but I totally get, I mean, look, hats off to you. You made a great call, call on the top. So you got cred. And if you just want to say, hey, you know what? I got paid on my short. I'm done. I don't know. It could bounce. That's fine. That's an answer. But again, for the average person at home, I hear what you're saying loud and clear. It could bounce. But if I were sitting, and I'm not in front of a screen, but I remember this morning, XOP was 130 or something like that. Just using that as a placeholder is it. You know, is it for EMP? If I said to you, you know, where do you think I mean, energy ultimately goes? Like, do you think throughout the course of this, the rest of this year, the balance of this year, 
we're do you going to see meaty through lower levels of energy, or is that too hard to call? Um, you know, and, and you may say, well, gee, George, I don't really know what I think. I have higher conviction in my short run than my, my intermediate and longer term. So when you look at structures, short term, you made a great call. Hats off to you. But looking beyond the very short run where you're saying it might bounce, do you have any view? It's okay if you don't have a view. Do you have any stronger view about the intermediate to longer term on energy, Tommy? A lot of times when you have these long-term uptrends and then you get the not only daily and weekly DeMarc cell countdowns, uh, you get a you get a first move down and that's wave one. And the next wave, I, I, I'm just going to speculate, could be a lower high wave and doesn't get back up to the old highs. And then we start to fade again and move, move lower into, if we break the recent lows, then it moves into wave three. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of going a little further out um, before it's actually you know, too clear in my mind. But that's, that's kind of my view right now when, when you have these longer term uh, sell countdown 13s on a weekly. I mean, overall, the entire market, X Energy last year around December had just a ton of sell countdown 13s across the board within the uh, S&P. The other thing is we're starting to get, and, and those were the only, Energy was the only sell countdown 13s um, a, a month ago that I was seeing, and that was it. And now I'm starting to see a lot of buy countdowns uh, and some on the weekly standpoint as well. So it's it's giving me that kind of was part of the reason why I, I, I turned a little bit uh, long uh, currently for a bounce. And trust me, I'm agnostic this year as far as being bullish or bearish. And I think that um, I'll get some right, I'll get some wrong. Um, I, you know, I just want to have the ratio work in my favor. Again, I have no commercial relationship with Tommy. I've known him for a number of years and he annoys the heck out of me when he calls these bounces. He's usually right. He did it again. Uh, he's a must-follow, and I'm sure if you, and you really, his research service is an extraordinary value for the rather modest prices he charges. So I'm shamelessly plugging for Tommy because he's one of the best in the business, and I read his work every day, and I urge others to do likewise. I can't think of another research. There are, there are research products which, which are as good, but the value, what he charges, is just ridiculous. So... I urge everyone to run, not walk, to subscribe to his service again. Thanks. Thanks, George. It's very nice of you. Uh, By the way, guys, I've got to jump off. I've got a call coming in uh, at 1230 here. I hope everyone has a great weekend. George, thank you as as always. And everyone, have a great great time. We'll probably be on this tomorrow, right? (laughs) All right. We're going to do one more question. We're going to have Carpathia wrap it up. And then we're going to close the room. Carpathia, my friend, good to see you. What's on your mind, sir? I just wanted to jump in and real quick, these are fabulous. Um, I want to confirm which I think it was Shrub what was saying, you know, I have a small practice. I sent a, and then I sent a free like little uh, journal out and there's, there's huge resistance to actually accept that the, you know, the great moderation is ending to, you know, to, for lack of a better term. And, you know, I sent an email out this morning about, heck, hey, you're getting your rally. But, uh, you know, everyone in these in these spaces, I think, not every, I, you know, the ones that talk, we're all trying to look around the corner. And that's extremely valuable. And that's where I cut my teeth in 80s and 90s. And I think it's extremely valuable. But Bianco, it was a uh, Saturday's space where there's three and a half, four and a half trillion 
it's totally mechanized. So part of the skill set we have to, you know, decide is we don't really know. We we know we're in this sort of backwash transitionary zone with the Fed. And, you know, we know we're going to have a hot number in July, right? But then you have this, I call it the, you know, each year I had to, you know, now it's up to 2022. I call it how 2022. And it doesn't think. It's reactionary. And it's the rebalancing, the tactical. So we have this, we're trying to look around the corner and we're trying to make sense of something. And this is an extremely good spaces that George, it's revolutionary. I sent you um, a, a PM. We got to keep this going because I'm starting to see, even though people are resistant, getting a little bit of feedback about, oh, is this what you're talking about? So the, the good, the bad thing about the how 2022 is it's totally reactionary it's dumb it's based on what used to be a good thesis hypothesis but now it's just mechanized you know you know rebalance you know yada yada but i'm sitting here looking at my screen i'm a little long i hate being a little long it's green but that's from knowing we're going to get this rebalance and we got to learn to play with this thing around our neck i don't like it because it's just creating the stupidity that goes on. So, you know, anyway, that's my comments. It's not really a question. And uh, I think we got to keep trying to look around the corner and then try to use this, this machine, how 2022 to our advantage, like right now. Your wisdom, your friendship. Sorry to get back. I just been changed the last couple of days. I've actually been doing this space. The reason the reception has gone in and out. I've been driving from, uh, Westchester up to Boston, so I'm, I'm multitasking. I'm, I'm, so I'm sorry. I, I will call you. Apologize for that. Anyway, thanks for the wisdom. All right, listen. Um, we're an hour thirty three minutes. This has been incredible. The last couple of weeks has just been. I don't know what to say. I mean, I look at what we've done. I say, how do we do that? I mean, between Bianco and Meisler and Amy Castor and Chanos and Belkin and now Brigden and I left out some names. Again, you will not find a better space on Twitter than these spaces. And, you know, I'm not just doing this for, for you guys. I'm actually doing it for myself because I'm learning a lot, too. This is unbelievable. And you guys make the space. You ask the great questions. We'll keep trying to keep the caliber up. Um, anyway, I don't know there will be a space this weekend. There won't be one tomorrow. Maybe one on Sunday. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But I want to thank everyone. Aces, Shrub, Carpathia, Baron, Pete, um, Julian, he's gone. All of you. This has been awesome. We'll do it again. And, um, you know, have a great weekend. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, George.